Wasn't that amazing? Piano by Matt. Guitar by John. Drums by the Holy Spirit. Yes. I tell you, you didn't know what you were going to witness today. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 4 again, and uh, for this morning I want to pick up at uh, verse 11 and work basically down through verse 13 or so. Um, just to remind you, it, last week we talked a lot about the diversity in the church uh, that was all gathered around the unity that is ours in Christ. Um, Paul had made that point earlier on in chapter uh, two, he talked about how Jew and Gentile were brought together, made one in the body of Christ, the amazing grace of God that brought these, these warring groups together and, and united them. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, well, as a result of that, I want you to live in a way that's worthy of that, that's reflective of what God has done. And uh, at that point, then he talks about the oneness of the church. Remember, he said there's one God and Father. There's one God, the Son. There's one God, the Holy Spirit. And because of that, because there's just one God in three persons, then there's only one body of Christ. There's only one hope that we have in Christ. There's only one faith and only one baptism. So all these, these um, emphases on the oneness that is ours in the body of Christ, our fellowship that is one uh, in the body because of what God has done for us in Christ. And immediately after that, he says, but, you know, God has given to us through Christ, has given to us a diversity of gifts, a, a various ways in which the grace of God works out in our lives. And that's what we started looking at uh, last week. That's what we're looking at again this week. But what I want you to um, understand with me this morning is that the aiming point of all that diversity is, again, to bring us back to the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul said that uh, Christ has given us various gifts, and the examples that he mentions are by and large involved with communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, communi communicating the grace of God that has come to us because of the atoning work of Christ. He says he gave apostles, and when you think of an apostle, that's someone who was in touch with the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, the, the first apostles were, of course, those who had... Uh, witnessed him. They, they, they had seen the miracles. They had heard him teach. Uh, they were witnesses to uh, all that had transpired in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so that apostolic witness was very important to just get the facts out in front of people and to just say, here's what God did in Christ. Now, that ministry for us today is preserved in the New Testament. The apostolic witness uh, of the New Testament books written either by the apostles or by those who knew the apostles. Uh, for instance, Luke and Mark would have gained their information from those who were apostles who had um, actually been a part of that ministry. So the apostolic ministry is, is with us, but it, the highlight of that would be the gift of the scriptures to us. And then he says there are also prophets. Now, prophets are folks who speak forth the word of God, the the uh, typical way to think of a prophet, say, in the Old Testament is one who stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord. You know? uh, and in point of fact, thus saith the Lord to you. Well, more than just you. I mean, it's to everybody else. I don't want to single you out there. Okay. You're very secure, aren't you? Okay, yeah, we're okay. <laughs> but anyway, I better move to this side because... <laughs> but a prophet is someone who brings the word of God, thus saith the Lord, to God's people so that their lives might be brought into line with what God is doing. And even when a prophet 
uh, brings a prediction about the future, a foretelling of what God is going to do. It's for the purpose of shining light on the present so that we know how we should respond and live right now in the light of what God is going to do. So a prophet brings the word of God. Uh, we have that kind of ministry. Um, uh, I wouldn't exalt uh, myself to that. But, but anyway, anytime someone brings it, thus saith the Lord, this is what God says. This is what the word of God says. Uh, they're bringing a prophetic word to the church and challenging people to respond to God's uh, word to them. And then he said there are evangelists. Evangelists are those who are uh, bringing the gospel of salvation to people and challenging them to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a particular ministry in which uh, people are confronted by their sinfulness and, and, um, and, and a ministry in which the Holy Spirit works to bring about that kind of conviction in a person's heart. And then the Holy Spirit works to bring that person to a confession of faith and an acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And, of course, the missions ministry and the evangelistic ministry of the church is apparent uh, to us. But then after he has said uh, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, he says, pastors and teachers. Now, your English translation, if you're looking at the, um, uh, for example, the English Standard Version, uh, does a very good job of capturing the nuance of the Greek language. Uh, Greek has a way of giving you a list of things and telling you which ones belong together. Uh, it has to do with the anarthrous use of the, uh, of the noun. Okay, that killed you. Um, but what has to do with the word the, and so it says um, the, that Christ gave the apostles, look at your text, you see it, the apostles gave the prophets, gave the evangelists, gave the pastors and teachers. See, pastors and teachers has only one the to hold it together. And that, that's, that's a, an, an um, uh, aspect of great grammar as well. And so pastors and teachers sort of work together. It's, it's, a, it's a ministry that, that, that comes together. Um, pastors, uh, it, the word there just means shepherds. Uh, the idea of a pastor is someone who has been given responsibility for a portion of the flock of, of God's people. Uh, in fact, the word clergy comes from a Greek word that means portion, kleros means portion, and so a clergy person is someone who's been given a portion of the church to lead and to pastor and, and to um, uh, minister to them and nurture them uh, as well. So there are pastors, but a lot of that, that ministry also has to do with teaching, conveying the truth of God word, God's words uh, to uh, people's lives. Now, the, the thing that I want us to, to notice here is that when he gives this list, and it's not exhaustive of everything the Holy Spirit does in the church. It's not exhaustive of all the gifts. We know there are other gifts. Uh, but these in particular highlight the ministry of the Holy Spirit through people, giving gifts to people, in order that the gospel message and the person of Christ might be proclaimed, that people would be confronted with who Jesus is. And, and so that's... Um, Sort of the diversity, bringing us back to the unity. There's a one singleness of purpose in all these offices and all these uh, things that go on in the body of Christ. And so he says, Jesus gives these gifts, the, the, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers. But then you'll notice in verse 12, he says, the reason for that is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I grew up on King James Bible. Don't worry, I'm not going to quote it right now. But what I can tell you is that in the King James Bible, the punctuation was a little different. And so the verse sounded like he was saying that uh, Christ gave gifts to his church 
in order that the saints might be equipped, saints is a word for Christians, so that the people would, would have skill sets, would, would be equipped, and then that those who had the gifts might also be involved in the work of the ministry, and then they might also be doing the building up of the body of Christ. And it gave this idea that uh, the work of the church was sort of for specialists. It was for people who were kind of singled out, and, and everybody else was just sort of there and uh, having fun with it and, and, and all, all that. But, but the main load was to be carried by uh, the, the specialists at, at, uh, with these, these kinds of gifts. And that's where we got this idea of the separation of the clergy. Remember, those who were given a portion of the church, a clergy person, of the separation of clergy and laity. Laity comes from the Greek word laos. Uh, laos is a word that means people. And so it was the clergy and the people. And the idea was the clergy, they do the real church stuff. The people, well, they attend on Sunday and the rest of the week are on their own. One of the great um, recoveries of the Protestant Reformation was of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. The, re the reformers, Luther and Calvin and, and others, um, they, they read their scriptures, and what they found there was that the Bible does not make a distinction between a clergy leadership and, and sort of a passive, uh, inactive laity or, or people. What they saw was that every person who believes in Jesus Christ is called to be a priest, is called to be someone who brings worship to God and brings others into that worship and brings God to others. In other words, every believer is to be a priest in the body of Christ. And the recovery of that then was to say that there's no distinction between clergy and laity, but in point of fact, we are all together. And that's what this verse is saying. It is saying those who've been given this teaching ministry and preaching ministry, their purpose in doing so is to equip the whole church, to equip the saints, so that the whole church, the saints, might be involved in the ministry of the church. That everybody would be involved in that, and that everybody would be involved in building up the body of Christ. Now, that particular notion has real consequences on what we do in the church. Uh, very real consequences. Uh, you've probably heard of the, um, uh, the, the home group movement. You know, I'm, I'm part of a home Bible study. You know, I don't go to that stuffy church. You know, I, I have a home group Bible study, and that's great. A lot of people have been involved in it and find it very beneficial. But, what, but that, it's sort of like we've just discovered that adults need to be involved in Bible study and, uh, and so forth. What we have done in our church all along, way before home groups became popular, was we had small group Bible studies for adults. We called it Sunday school classes. Now, most of the people you talk to will, will say, Sunday school, that's just for children. Children go to Sunday school. They need to go to Sunday school to learn the Bible stories. But we're adults now. We don't have to go to Bible study, and we don't go to Sunday school anymore. Well, okay, fine. We won't call it Sunday school. We'll call it small group Bible study, all right? But we've been doing this all along because we are convinced that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to be equipped and able to do the work of the church, to do the work of the ministry, and to be involved in the building up of the church. And that's why in our uh, tradition, in our work here at, at our own church, we have always had Sunday morning Bible study small groups for everybody from cradle to grave, all right, all the way through. And that's why we talk about a seamless journey that everybody's to be involved. By the way, one of the important things that happens if you're involved in a, as an adult in a, in a small group Bible study called here Sunday morning is that you'll be in your small group 
and your kids will be in a small group at the exact same time. They're not being babysat somewhere. And if they are in church at the same time you're in church, what are they being taught? When I grow up, I'm still going to be in church. As opposed to, when I grow up, I'll be out having coffee and donuts. Or I'll be staying home. Or I'll be doing something else. In other words, all of us get together, all of the ages together, involved in the Word together, learning together, growing together, manifesting the meaning of this verse that all the saints are to be equipped for the work of the ministry, um, results in a full uh, Bible study experience for every age in the body of Christ. And all that's for the purpose of equipping us to build up the body of Christ. But then finally, verse 13, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's our aiming point for today, that we attain to a unity of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's how important that is. If ever you grow, uh, wake up one morning and you say, you know, I'd, I'd like to be a heretic. You know, heretic is somebody who, who distorts the gospel. You know, I'd, I'd like to be a heretic. Here's the way you're going to do it, okay? So you don't have to wonder how. Here's how you, you be a heretic. You deny something about Jesus. Every heresy denies something about Jesus. Denies either his deity or his humanity or his saving efficacy or his um, uh, 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 resurrection. You know, in some way, all heretics deny something about Jesus. And that's how you can, a lot of times, that's how you tell whether or not there's heresy going on. You know, uh, many years ago, and I tried to figure out how many it was, but I'm finally to that age where I can't remember how many it was. But back a long time ago, um, there, was, there was a movement uh, in the Mormon church to advertise Mormonism. And maybe you remember it, most of you won't, but uh, they had ads on television. It was beautiful well-done uh, videos and uh, just uh, full color and somebody looked like Jesus talking to other people and, and, uh, and then they told you why well, he's talking to people in North America and, you know, and all, all that kind of thing. And then there was this little blurb behind it that said, uh, the Book of Mormon, another testament to Jesus. And here's what they were trying to do. They were trying to get us to think, well, we got the Old Testament, we got the New Testament, well, maybe the Book of Mormon is just another testament to Jesus. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, they, they, folks, the Mormons deny, well, they, they, they kind of deny the deity of Christ, but they say Jesus is God, but then so are you. You, you know this, don't you? What the Mormons will tell you is that, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God, physically begotten by God. I mean, Sexual intercourse resulting in Jesus kind of thing. So Jesus is God, um, flesh and bone God. By the way, the Father is flesh and bone God, just like you are flesh and bone. And if you behave yourself and try real hard, someday you can be God too. And you see what's being denied here. The, the Trinity is being denied. The uniqueness of Christ is being denied. The Son that Jesus is the Son of God is being denied. A, a, a Mormon will tell you, they'll say, look, Jesus is a Son of God, but then you're a Son of God too. And so, you know, you're, you're a daughter of God. You know, everybody's an offspring of God. Kumbaya! You know, that, 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 that's the kind of thing. And uh, um, what that leads to is the idea that, well, 
we're just like God. God is just like us. And um, the only difference is God got a head start on us. See? And, and these are the, this is an actual quote from Joseph Smith. As he was, we are. Back a long time ago, God was, was just as frail and confused as we are. But as he was, that's the way we are. But as he is now, because God has progressed, you know, he's, he's matured a little bit lately, you know. As he is now, we will be. Of course, when we get to be the way God is, then God will be further down the road. So he's, he's just ahead of us on the journey. But all of us are going to get there, at, le- at least if you're Mormon, and at least if you behave yourself. So uh, that, that's the idea of, of, of the Mormons. You, you see, it's a, the, the, the reason the Mormons deny the doctrine of the Trinity, they say, yeah, Father is God, Son is God, Holy Spirit is God, you are God. Can't have just three and one because that would deny the rest of us the chance to be God. Are you, are you tracking with me on this? So the, 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 the point that, that, that I'm getting at is we need to attain to the unity of the faith in Jesus Christ. Not some man-made doctrine, not some kind of uh, 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 generated speculation, not some kind of really fantastical novel about, about uh, um, uh, what happened to Jesus and, and all that, but rather to be based upon the witness of those who knew Jesus on the scriptures, on the Bible, and based on the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst to bring us to that unity of faith. So that's what we're reading about in our, in our text this morning. It is we have unity because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, one God in three persons, a diversity of gifts, but all those gifts are working together to bring us back to the unity of faith so that it, we don't go wandering off, squandering off, wandering off uh, in all kinds of different directions. So that's um, what we're reading about here, and uh, that's what I want for us to look at. So uh, we haven't read it yet. Let's just read uh, verses 11 through 13, and, uh, and by the way, later on when we come back to the, to the scriptures, uh, we're going to be looking at the foundation of the unity of our faith, and it was given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, so you may want to have a bookmark there. But here we go in, in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, we're so thankful that you are God of light who shines in darkness. The Father, though we were in the kingdom of darkness and we were Uh, just chained to the powers of darkness. Your light broke in through Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit redeemed us and called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your dear Son. I'm thankful, Father, that when the darkness comes to us in life, when, when the darkness seems to be overwhelming, that your light shines brighter still. Father, I'm thankful that when we embrace the darkness, you come to us and your light cleanses us and and shows us our, our dark sin, and, Father, shows us our need of repentance. Father, I'm thankful that you are God of light, who enables us to see you and then to walk in the light. 
And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the courage of faith to constantly look to you, to walk in your light, that you would be glorified all in the name of Jesus. I hope you will have your Bible open to Matthew 16 or your electronic device centered, tuned into, locked on Matthew 16. There's no app on your phone that is as interesting as I am. Okay, well, at least no one more important than Matthew 16. Uh, but we have that in, in front of us. It starts at verse 13. This is the incident uh, we're going to look at for a moment where um, Jesus at Caesarea Philippi asked the disciples who I am and uh, the, the response to that. Uh, in some ways, you can look at, at this passage, the confession at Caesarea Philippi, as the birth announcement of the church. The church actually, if you want to think of it this way, comes into existence on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out and all those gathered in the upper room receive the gift of the Spirit manifested by speaking in other tongues intelligibly so that the whole world can hear the gospel. And so the, the church is brought into existence in uh, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But before that, even before the cross and the resurrection, Jesus talked about uh, the church, and he did it here with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. And as we look at what Jesus says about it and how he gets there, we come to understand the intention that Jesus has for the unity and the focus of his body, the church. And so we plunge in reading uh, at verse 13. It says, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, which, by the way, is about as far north as you can get and still be in Israel, as I understand it, far away from Jerusalem, by the way, far away from the crowds. They're sort of uh, retreating away for, for a little respite from the press of the multitudes. And so they come to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I think we need to pause for a moment and understand Jesus did not say, what do the people think about the parables. Do you think they're going over well or not? Should I recraft a few of them? What is their opinion about the healing ministry? What do you think? Too much? Too little? How is that, how is that playing out there uh, among the people? How about that teaching thing? Am I, am I being too, too deep and profound? Do I need to dumb this down? Do I need more illustrations? Maybe, some, uh, maybe I need some... Uh, 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 visual aids for the people to look at? Uh, you know, uh, is there, you know, he didn't ask them, how do the people evaluate my ministry? He didn't even ask, how are the people helped by my ministry? Jesus said, what is the conclusion that people have come to as to who I am? At the very focal point is the person of Jesus. And that's the question that needs to be answered. Who is this Jesus guy? We sort of ran into that when we went through the Gospel of John a few years back. So he says, who do the people say that I am? And they said, well, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist. And that's 
kind of hard to figure. I mean, there's no tradition of reincarnation in the Jewish tradition. There's no idea of, of people just sort of cycling through and cycling back and in and, 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 and that kind of regard. Uh, although King Herod actually said that, you know, when he heard about Jesus, um, Herod said, you know, I, I, I put John to death and here's this Jesus guy and he's bothering me the same way as, as, as John did. And, you know, there's something about a guilty conscience that has done something really horrific that starts to think that, well, maybe it's coming back on me and starts to think in, in, in these kinds of crazy ways, um, you know, sort of the, the telltale heart and crime and punishment and all that. I, I'm sorry I got literary on you. But, there, there's, you know, so Herod, out of, out of his guilt, guilt feelings, might have thought that, well, that Jesus guy is actually really John the Baptist come back. But the people had no reason to think that. Probably what they're saying is, this Jesus sounds a lot like John the Baptist. This Jesus is preaching the same message, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and, and, and be baptized for forgiveness. Um, so this Jesus sounds so much like John the Baptist. He, he is a John the Baptist type person. And so some are saying you're John the Baptist and other people are saying, well, Elijah. Now that kind of makes more sense because there was a tradition uh, uh, and uh, the teaching of scripture, if you will, uh, the, the the prophecy that before Messiah comes, Elijah would come first. Elijah would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And so they see Jesus teaching and preaching. He's not quite doing what Messiah ought to do, however. He's not, you know, running the Romans out. He's not exalting the Jews. He's not, um, uh, you know, making, making it sound like the Jews are really the, the, the top-notch people of the planet the way they thought Messiah should do. But he's, he's talking about the kinds of things that maybe Messiah will pick up on. So maybe this Jesus is Elijah fulfilling that promise of, of coming back. And so, well, maybe he's Elijah. Still others, they said, say that you are Jeremiah. Now, this one's harder to figure because Jesus actually preached more from Isaiah than he did Jeremiah. Uh, it, it may be that as they looked at the ministry of Jesus, they saw someone there who wept over Jerusalem, whose heart was broken by the, the, the nature of the people, who's moved with compassion because they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. It may well have been that uh, they remembered that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, and Jeremiah had a lot to say against the leadership uh, of his day, and there was this, this clash going on, and they saw Jesus clashing with the Pharisees and so forth. So they, they may have said, well, he's a Jeremiah-type prophet. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. And then they sort of had a catch-all category, and they said, well, uh, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets, you know, they, a prophet. Now, this, is, by the way, is like a really interesting thing for them to say. Jesus, you are a prophet because the spirit of prophecy had been vacant from Israel uh, for, uh, for hundreds of years. And so they, they sensed that something was coming. But notice that every time an answer was given, it did not say Jesus is Messiah. It would say he's getting ready for Messiah. He's preparing the way, but he's not Messiah. In other words, they were explaining Jesus in categories that they already knew, things they thought they already understood. This is what human beings do. We try to explain Jesus in categories we already know. 
Who is Jesus? He's a teacher. I know what a teacher is. I know what a teacher does. By the way, I know how to ignore teachers. And therefore, Jesus is a great teacher. I can control his input into my life. He may be a great teacher, but I can, I can sort of manage that because I know I've, I've dealt with teachers, and so I'm, I'm okay with that. Others say, well, Jesus is a great religious leader, and we all know what great religious leaders are, and we also have great experience in ignoring religious leaders when we want to. You know, sometimes we, we, we like what they say, sometimes we don't, but he's a great religious leader. It's a category I understand, and if Jesus is just a great a religious leader, then I can deal with him because I can sort of control the impact he has in my life. You know, Jesus was a great man. He was a good man. He was a moral philosopher. All those kinds of things. Those are categories that we understand and we already know how to either discount them or incorporate them, but we stay in charge with the impact that Jesus will have in our lives if he's just these things. And so the people are saying, Jesus is a really astounding person and and we really got to take notice of him, but in point of fact, we understand who he is. Whatever he is, we, we can control that. But here's the thing. Jesus is like nobody you know. Jesus is like no one you've ever met before. Jesus does not fit into any category you have in your head. You cannot build a shoebox and squeeze Jesus into it. Jesus is not going to be pressed in to some category that you've already got constructed in your head. But this is what we do as people. And so uh, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And basically they say, well, Jesus is, you know, he's, he's kind of a challenge, but we can fit him in. I can, I can accommodate him without, without too much problem into my thinking and into my life. And then in verse 15, he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, in the Greek, there's a way of emphasizing words. It has to do with the word order. And so sometimes you might see a translation, something like this. What about you? Who do you say that I am? That's the emphasis of the Greek word order. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And at that moment, the disciples are looking at Jesus, Peter as well. They see there the man whose hands have worked miracles. They see there someone whose eyes have gazed upon the people with love and compassion. They see there a man whose feet have walked tirelessly across the countryside to bring the word of God. They see there a man whose voice resonates not just because it can be heard by large crowds, but because it has an impact on every individual in a large crowd. They see there a man like they've never known before. And Peter, whether speaking for all of them because they've all come to this conclusion or speaking out of Peter's very calm, cool, collected, rational sort of thought process. No, he's just sort of jumping out there and, and, and not... You know, waiting to, to, to consider everything. But however you figure it, Peter just stands up and Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. No forerunner, no preparation person. You are the Messiah. 
Now, in Peter's mind, that, that probably meant you are the one who is going to come and exalt Israel. You're the one who is going to come and point out to the rest of the world that we were right all along. You're the one who's going to come in glory and majesty, and everybody's just going to just, uh, just fall back in amazement, and we're going to tag along with you, and we're going to cash in a little bit on that. Jesus, you are the Messiah. We're real sure Peter didn't quite understand what he was saying. And the reason we're sure is that in the very next paragraph, oh, well, let's just skip to it now. It, it says that after this, after Jesus, it, it, Peter confesses that you're the, the Messiah, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. After that time, he began to show his disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter just, uh, uh, Jesus just lays out for them. Here's what it means to be Messiah. It means crucifixion, and it means resurrection, and all that entails. And Peter, who not just a few verses earlier had said, you're the Messiah, takes Jesus to one side and says, Jesus, you know, you're wrong. I wish you'd talk to me first before you started this thing, because I could have told you that that's not what Messiah does. That'll never happen. And at that point, Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance or a scandal to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, Peter, you're, you're still in the, in the human mode of thinking. You're not letting the, 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 the Spirit of God uh, just bring you around to a proper understanding. Now, here's why I bring it up now. Peter didn't know quite everything he was saying when he said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And yet in a moment, Jesus is going to say, right you are, Peter, and I can use that. You know what that means? That means that Jesus can use our faith even when we don't have all the answers. Jesus acknowledges our faith. That is, that, that is the avenue we come to Jesus by faith, even when we don't even know what we're doing quite. But if the Holy Spirit of God is moving us, God honors that faith in Christ Jesus. So we're real sure that Peter doesn't quite understand what he's saying here. But you know, he, he's, he's closer than the people. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, and you are the son of the living God. And uh, that, that's in the Greek. The, the, the articles are there. And the idea is that you are not a son of the living God. Because if you said you are a son of God, it would, it, it would mean something like, oh, you're a very godly person. Or, you know, you're very spiritual. Uh, you know, you, you really are in tune with this religion thing. It says you are the son of God. The. And you, you might even feel it. I, or you can see John, uh, the, the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John. You can see him listening to all this saying, Peter, say it, say it, say it. Only begotten. Say it, say it. Only begotten. Say it. You know. but Peter says you're the son of the living now, some people have said living God is redundant, but actually in that, in that area, in that time, there were many gods purporting to be gods. The Jews knew there was only one true and living God. All others are no gods at all. In our world today, there are a lot of things that we serve as gods and that our society serves as gods. They are not God at all. There's only one true and living God, and this Jesus is the son of the living God. So there it is. 
That's the confession. It's, it's very simple. There's a lot more to unwrap as you go through that. That's what Jesus starts to do when he says, you know, the, the, the Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem, be crucified, and rise again. He's, he's unpacking all that that means. And so uh, wrapped up in all this is Jesus, you're the Messiah, sent by God to die for the sins of lost humanity, to be raised on our behalf that we might have newness of life. You're the Son of the living God, worthy of worship and praise. You are the Lord, you're the Master, and all those kinds of things, all that wrapped up in that. But for now, all Peter knows to say is, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him this way. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you. Now, that word blessed, um, it, one of the basic meanings of that word is, is just sort of happy. Uh, it has the idea of happiness that is filled with contentment uh, and well-being. But I want first to think about it a, a little bit better. Because Jesus is saying more than, uh, wow, Peter, uh, that's a really nice thing you've done. And, and that will be good for you. You remember the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. And Jesus said things like, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Did the poor know that the kingdom of God was theirs? No. Did they see the kingdom of God, uh, you know, in an apparent way that they could embrace? No. Were they still poor? Yes. In other words, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of God, he was saying, you who are poor, you have no idea what God's doing in your life. You who are poor, you have no idea what's in store for you. You who are poor don't realize the magnitude of the grace of God working in your life. The whole kingdom of God is yours. You may not realize it now, but there's a ton of grace going on in your life, you who are poor. That's where Jesus said things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Were they satisfied yet? No. Could they explain it yet? No. But Jesus was saying, if you have a hunger and a thirsting after righteousness, and that is the righteousness of God as, as made manifest in the gift and the incarnation of his son in Jesus Christ. But, but, you know, you who hunger and thirst after righteousness, you are blessed because you haven't even begun to imagine what God is going to do. You can't even begin to think about the magnitude of what God is up to in your life. Because you're hungering right now. You're hungry for righteousness right now. And you're thirsting for righteousness right now. But the grace of God is going to satisfy that hunger and that thirst. You have no idea how much God is at work in your life. Blessed are the meek. They'll inherit the earth. Did they get the earth right there? No. But Jesus was saying, you who are meek, you have no idea what's in store for you by the grace of God. And you have no idea what's about to happen in your life. Now, come back to Peter and Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You are blessed. Because right now, Peter, you have no idea what God is up to. You have no idea how much he has in store for you. You can't even begin to imagine the greatness of God's grace in your life. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you are in line with the will of God and the glory of God, and, and that's just going to work out in your life. You may not see it now, Peter, but I can tell you it's coming. You're blessed, Peter, because with this confession, something has happened. Something has happened. 
And Jesus goes on to explain it this way. We're still in verse uh, 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Said Peter, you didn't figure this out by sitting down with the guys and having a little conversation where you explored the possibilities of who I am, and you came up with this conclusion, and that's really fine. Uh, you know, he said, flesh and blood didn't, didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. This is God's work. This is what God has done. So that, that's the confession. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And it takes place when God the Father reveals that to us. How did that happen for Peter? I mean, exactly what happened? Was, was he just sitting there and Jesus asked the question and suddenly the sky opened up and the little, little sparkly blue light came down and the Charlton Heston voice, you know, Peter, Peter, Peter. Jesus is the Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. Or did God the Father over the course of two years now, he showed Peter time and time again, the power of the Holy Spirit as Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead? Did he show Peter that there was a wisdom far beyond anything he'd ever heard about in the rabbis as he listened to Jesus teach and as the parables, so confusing to those outside, but the parables became a little bit clearer to them. Over those two years, Peter had watched Jesus closely and seen him time and time again. And the Father revealed to Peter who Jesus is. Now today, we see who Jesus is. We don't see him physically. But everything that we need to know that he said, it's in the Bible. You know, we don't hear his voice, but we have the Bible and we hear his voice there. We don't see him working miracles, but we have the Bible and we see the miracles there. We don't see the way in which he touched lives and changed lives. Uh, in, 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 in his earthly ministry, but we see it in the Bible. The scriptures give to us that revelation of who Jesus is. But even as you read the Bible, it doesn't come alive to us until the Father in his grace sends the Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we might see that Jesus is Messiah, Son of the living God. Oh, if you've, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you, you know this is true. You accepted him as Lord and Savior in the joy that came your way. And now looking back years later, you realize, I had no idea how good this was going to be. There have been trials and tribulations and ups and downs. There's been pain. There's been heartache. But there's been triumph and joy. And through it all, he's been faithful, more faithful than I have been to him. And the Father reveals to us who Jesus is. And that's a miracle of our Father in heaven. So Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You, you didn't figure this out. My Father in heaven, he's the one who told you all about this. Now, verse 18, and, and we're, we're, we're going to have to wrap this up. That, that's fine. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, which, by the way, is the word Petros, um, and it, all that, that boulder, pebble stuff. And the word for rock is Petra, but that's a feminine word. So if you were going to call a guy Rocky, um, if you couldn't call him a Petra. You would have to call him a Petros. Tros is, is, is masculine. And so um, that, that's all that's happening here. He says, but you, you are Peter, rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, time eludes us, so we won't go into the missteps of the church and, and thinking that what Jesus did here was he gave Peter some kind of infallible authority that would last through his his successors in some kind of, of, of ecclesiastical office. 
Now, I mean, just read it. All, all Jesus is saying, look, Peter, you have confessed that I'm the Messiah. You, you've done that, and that's a rock. That's a rock I can build on. Now, there's going to be other rocks coming along, by the way, Peter. I mean, Peter himself says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Jesus is the cornerstone. We're just built on that. Paul said that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and the prophets. Book of Revelation says the same thing, and, and constantly throughout the scriptures. So Peter himself would not say that, oh, I am the only rock upon which the church is built. He would, it, it, he would agree with what Jesus is saying here. I should hope so. And that is that, Peter, this confession makes you a rock upon which I can build my church. And it will be built upon this faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So that, that just real quickly. But there's something I want you to see here. And it's actually an amazing thing. It says, on this rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. He said, on this rock, Peter, if you, if you work hard enough, you can build a church. He said, Peter, you know, if you go to enough seminars and look at enough videos and get the latest and the greatest in church management and organization and figure out how to manipulate the social media, then you can build the church. He said, Peter, I'm going to build the church. I'm going to use you, but I'm going to be the one who's building the church. That's the essence of the unity of the church. It comes into being by the confession that Jesus is Messiah, and then it is built up and made strong and healthy by the work of Christ in our midst. Are you starting to get the feeling it just might be all about Jesus? Because not only did he say, I will build my church, he said, I will build my church. It won't even belong to you. This is going to be my church. Well, um, time eludes us. I wish we could finish off to, to the end of it, but, but the, the, the greatest um, thing I want you to see here is that the focus of the unity of the church as the body of Christ is the confession, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. For all that that means, we don't understand it completely. We don't when we believe. We grow in our understanding. But that's how we come into the body of Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's maintained by that focus on Jesus, always on Jesus. So there's a next step for you to take. Okay. And uh, the, um, the next step, if you have never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, the next step is to join Peter. And when the question is asked, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus in your life? To respond, he's my Messiah. He's, he's my Savior. He's the Son of the living God whom I love and adore. So the next step is to ask Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior. That's the very next step. But if you know Christ, if you know him as your Savior, if you've walked with him for just a little while, if you've walked with him for decades, the next step is to step closer to Jesus. Now, and that, that happens through a commitment to Bible study. It happens through a commitment to the body of Christ, being a part of a small group, of a, of a, of a Bible study group, and learning and worshiping and, and praying together. The next step is to step closer to Jesus, to know more and more of him. Because the more you know him, the more you love him. And that's the next step. And when we do that, then Christ will be at the center of our lives. He'll be at the center of our church. And the Father will receive the glory through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.
And Father, I do pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Father, upon those who need to profess faith in Christ, that you would give courage today, that you would give the motivation today. Father, that they would come to faith today. And I ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon those of us who have known Jesus. But Father, sometimes we have wandered away. We've grown lazy. We've grown lackadaisical. We've taken our eyes off of him. We've looked elsewhere. Father, just give us one purpose, one vision, one goal, one hope. Let it be Jesus. Father, we are just so thankful for the outpouring, the working of your Holy Spirit. May it continue for your glory in Jesus' name.